Welcome to the Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com. Good morning, Calvary. Good to see all of you on this beautiful Sunday. Somebody said it's supposed to turn cool tomorrow. I would vote for that if we're going to have to take a vote on it. So uh, glad that uh, we got to be here on the last hot Sunday of the year. So we are going to get warm in the spirit. He has some things to say to us. I'm continuing some teaching on the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Two weekends ago, we had our Propel Conference on Eschatology, the second coming uh, of the Lord Jesus. It's prophesied throughout the scripture. Uh, There's like 150 chapters in the Bible that the main theme is the second coming of Jesus Christ. More than, a lot more than about the first coming of prophecies. There are a lot of those, but more about the second coming. So we took uh, the weekend on all day Saturday, a couple of weekends ago, and talked about it. And then last Sunday, and today will be the last message on that. Can we have some lights? It's so dark. I can't see anybody out there. Ah, now I can see. There are people, real people. Yay. Oh, and people online, too. I see you. Well, I hope not. Uh, I know how I go to church sometimes when it's online. It's like you're kind of relaxed, you know. But we're glad that you're here. I got a little test for you, sort of get your brains working, because when we deal with things like uh, second coming and eschatology and all that, it's like you, you need to have your thinking heart going, not just your love heart, but your thinking heart. So I've got just some questions about gender, and I have some common objects, and I want you to tell me whether they are male or female, whether they're male or female. Like Ziploc bags, male or female? No, they're male because they always hold everything in, but you can see right through them. <laughs> Swiss Army knife, male or female? Male, absolutely, because even though it appears they're useful for a lot of different things, they spend most of their time opening bottles. <laughs> Kidneys, male or female? Female, you got it. Yep, because they always go to the bathroom in pairs. It's like, just. <laughs> How about an automobile tire, male or female? Male, you got it, because it goes bald and it's often overinflated. <laughs> okay, guys, I'll stop being mean. What are you, understanding and responding to the signs of the times part two. Well, I'll be. I didn't know I had a slide. Thank you. That's just so cool. It's not the title of the sermon, but it's a great slide. <laughs> Sponges, male or female? Female, because they're soft and squeezable and retain water. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had to have that one cleared at a high level, but uh, there, there you have it. Everybody take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, as we look at four signs that Jesus himself gives us. These are from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Four signs that the coming, second coming of Jesus Christ is approaching. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we live in your world and we are your creation. And we bear your image. And we are called to be those imagers who help others to see who you are and what you're like. And your son Jesus has brought us into your family, that we are daughters, we are sons of God, kings and priests in the earth. And Lord, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, our bodies designed to be integrated with spirit and matter put together to make us whole and holy and beautiful, full of life that you've designed, God. Lord, we... we we are precious in your sight. You have loved us so much. You sent your son to die for us because we have all gone astray. But I thank you, Lord, that you came after us, that you always come after us and never stop. So, Lord, help us to join you to seek and save that which is lost, that your creation might be restored 
Remind us, God, you're not just saving people. You're saving the creation itself. So, Lord, speak to us today. Holy Spirit, teach us. Illumine our minds and stir up our hearts, God, to be passionate about you and your coming. And I ask this in the name, the strong name of Jesus, our Savior, our soon-coming King. Amen and amen. So Matthew 24, what are the signs of the Lord's coming? What should we be watching for? If we think it's near, then what are the things that God says, this is a good sign. This will know, yep, it is near. It's coming. There are events that Jesus himself talks about to us. So the problem with trying to talk about signs and things like that, prophecies, is that there's so much data. Like I said, 150 chapters talk about this. So it's like, where do you even start with such a subject that's so large? It's replete through the New Testament, and there's a lot of the Old Testament that deals with this. It's very difficult because of the great amount of data that we actually have. It's sort of like you know, buying one of those 1,500-piece jigsaw puzzles. It's like, where do you start? You know, you dump it out on the table, and of course... Anybody knows how to work a puzzle, you know how to start, don't you? You look for the straight edge pieces, right? You build the border first. And that's what we're going to do today. Jesus actually does it for us because his disciples actually asked Jesus this exact question. Lord, what are the signs of your coming? When are you coming? And he gives them four signs. He said, here's four things to watch for. So this is the border of our picture puzzle. All the other pieces, all the 150 chapters and all the stuff in them, it gets put together in the middle. We're not going to do the whole picture, but we're going to do the four border pieces, and we'll know the outline that gives us some really good understanding of what the world is like as the approaching return of Jesus is uh, upon us. So... Matthew chapter 24, we have Jesus coming out of the temple, and what we find, it's a little confusing to us because the disciples actually ask him two questions, and sometimes in our translations, it actually looks like one question. It's like a continuation with an and in the middle. Other translations, which do it a little bit better, rather than an and, they'll have a question mark there, because the and is the start of a second question. So I'm not sure what you're looking at. If you're looking at NIV, like it has an and in there, just make that a question mark and start a second question, because they're asking two questions here, and the questions are, Jesus comes out of the temple, and he says, I I tell you, not one stone's going to be left upon another. This temple's going to be torn down. And so they ask him a question, when's this going to happen? And another question, what's the sign of your coming? When are you going to come back? Jesus has already told him he's going to go away. He's going to come back again to set up his kingdom in its fullness. So they ask him, when's the temple going to be destroyed? And when are you coming back? There are two questions. So make that very clear in your scripture there as you look at it. First question about the temple. Jesus says there's not going to be one stone left upon another. That's going to happen within 70 years of when they ask this question. What they don't get, and what's really huge, is that the answer to the second question is at least 20 centuries apart from the answer to the first question. Big space of time in there. So let's look at this passage. We're just going to work our way down Matthew 24. It's one of the main passages, 24 and 25 of Matthew, that where Jesus teaches is about the second coming and the world. So we're going to just look down through Matthew 24 and build the edges of our puzzle. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him, and they called his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And Titus, the Roman Conqueror comes in at that time since they're in rebellion against Rome. They're not doing what Rome wants them to do. And so he comes in and he tears down the temple in 70 years from this time. Verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, they've walked out of the city now. They're up on the side of the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately and they said, tell us, when will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? That's the first question. And, if you have an and in your translation there, or you may have a question mark, hopefully, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So two questions. When's the temple going to be destroyed? 
It's going to happen in 70 years. When is the signs? What are the signs of your coming and the end of the age? Notice again, the end of the age. This world is not coming to an end. The age in which we live is coming to an end. This age, the scripture described in Galatians chapter 1, is an evil age. It's ruled by Satan. Jesus calls Satan the God of this age. Paul calls him the same thing. In our rebellion, Satan has taken control. We've given him authority, actually. He did it back starting in the garden, didn't we? We started listening to him rather than to God. And that's the condition of the world in which we live now. It's an evil age ruled by Satan. Oh, sovereignty of God, of course, is always there. But there's coming a time when the age is going to come to an end. Not the world. Even the great commission that we love so much as evangelicals, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to do all I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, not the world, the age. This age comes to an end. Jesus returns and sets up the new age. There is a new age coming. It's called the kingdom of God, where the king shows up, where the owner and the creator shows up and says, okay, let's put this back like it was intended to be. And we work with Jesus in our resurrected bodies for a thousand years or some hundreds of years, getting it back like God intended it to be in the beginning. We get to help remake what we've messed up. That's going to be a glorious time. So Jesus says, um, the, the temple's going to be destroyed. They say, when's that going to happen? And what is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So he answers both of these questions. And the answers, again, they're not understanding the time frames here. These are, we know, at least 20 centuries apart. But Jesus describes four signs as he speaks here in this passage, telling us about his return. And each one describes something that 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 is going to happen, and then in each one he gives us a danger. What's the danger? When this sign starts happening, what danger are we in? And he gives us a duty. How should we respond to this as believers? So we're going to see a sign, a danger, and a duty as we go around the four pieces of the border of this picture. And the first one, let's just dig right in. The first sign is disasters in the world. Disasters in the world. Matthew 24 Beginning in verse 4, Jesus answered, watch out, now he's answering their question, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. In other words, it's not the end yet. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus, Paul, they describe the second coming, the establishment of the kingdom as the birth process. A pregnant woman, and she goes and starts having contractions, and Jesus says, this is just a start. Here's the first border. How do we know? What is the sign that we're approaching a time of Jesus' coming? Wars famines, earthquakes. And again, these are not uh, exhaustive. These aren't the only things that happen. They're illustrative. It's going to be a world that's got a lot of problems. Things are going to be going on. And of course, you could look at every century and say, well, those things have kind of always gone on. But it I, I think any of us, if you know anything about history, would have to say, you know what, even though we're not like in World War II, the truth is our world has greater danger now of destroying itself than it did then. We have greater power. We have greater um, enemies in the sense of terrorists and people who wouldn't mind destroying an entire city just out of sheer meanness or anything else. It's like our world is a very, very shaky place. So Jesus mentions these three things, the wars, the famines, the earthquakes, and that forms one of our border pieces, disasters in the world. If you study the book of Revelation, it mentions some other things prior to the coming of Jesus, like pollution of rivers, pollution of oceans. Are we seeing that today? Hell storms of increasing intensity, difficulty to deal with. Are we seeing increasing weather patterns? Well, yes. Disease, it mentions death. So there are lots of disasters. Jesus mentions three, but the book of Revelation and other 
passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament reveal other things that the world is basically coming apart at the seams. Uh, we studied at the Propel Conference uh, Isaiah 24. You can look at Isaiah 24 through 27. That's one long prophecy about the second coming. And it starts out in 24. The earth is just being riddled with problems. So this is the first thing that Jesus teaches us that the world is just going to be in bad shape. Things are going to get worse and worse. Natural disasters, political disasters with the wars. So it's both of those. It's not one or the other. Both of those are all going on at the same time. And exponentially, these things are increasing. And what does it do in the world? People in the world become more alarmed and more insecure. But Jesus says to us, don't do that. Don't respond to a world that's falling apart with alarm. Like, oh no, my goodness, we're going to be all going to, the ship's going down and we're going down with it. And in that kind of setting, when things are shaking, everything's coming apart, what do people want? They want somebody to save them, don't they? They want somebody with the answers. And so he talks there about the false Christ or Messiah. Saviors are going to show up. People will come to take advantage, won't they? To say, look to me, you know, lean on me. I've got the answers. Follow me. Follow this nation. Follow this government. Follow this person. That's why false messiahs and Christ saviors are mentioned here because in a world that's coming apart, people will always look for somebody to save them, somebody to help them. So that door is open to these false Christ and messiahs. So the danger in this, of course, you've got the disasters themselves, but the danger is the false Christ, false messiahs that come offering hope, offering help, wanting your money or whatever else they're wanting. They'll have an answer for you what it is that you need. So we have to protect ourselves from what? From deception. We have to know this is not Jesus. We don't need false saviors. We need the Savior. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and not allow our lives to sink into panic about all the calamities there in verse 6 that it mentions. We do this by understanding what Jesus says about it, what Paul says about it, what the the prophets say about this, that all these painful calamities are not something that we react to as like the ship's going down and we're going down with it. We see these not as the death pangs of the old, but the birth pangs of the new. Jesus says this is the beginning of birth pangs. There's our duty. Look at these things as it's not that we're losing the old, it's that the new is coming. The new is right before us. Let's press toward it with fervency, with faith and with the things God gives us to do, which is to bring testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Savior of the world. So that's our duty. The danger is deception. People are going to look for all kinds of answers, all kinds of saviors. But the duty is stay faithful to Christ. Don't let your heart panic and see this in the proper biblical perspective. It's not like the whole world is going to be lost. We're about to get the new world. We're about to get the kingdom of God. And that's a good thing. But just like the birth process, there's no clean birth, right? It's messy. And it's painful, but indeed there's something good. There's a hope that makes you endure and you're excited about what's to come. Our redemption is drawing nigh. So the appropriate response is not alarm, it's not anxiety, it's anticipation. That's what we need to respond to all of the disasters in the world. We need an anticipation. Our God is on the throne, his plan is unfolding, and the kingdom of God is about to arrive. That calls for people to be people of faith, doesn't it? It calls us to be what we're called believers. We actually believe Jesus and what he said rather than whatever else is being said in the world. We believe him. We trust him. We belong to him. And so our life as believers, that, that's a great duty upon us. Don't panic. Don't look for false saviors. Believe Jesus and continue to be faithful to him and understand our redemption's drawing nigh. Our king is about to come. Okay, first sign, disasters in the world. Second sign, deserters in the church. Deserters in the church. Matthew 24, continue on, verse 9 now. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith 
and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That is a terrifying statement, isn't it? When you look at that just face value, not the love of many, the love of most will grow cold. The world gets so bad, it's like, heck with that noise. I'm just me and ours and take care of mine. It's, there's, no, there's this rejection of love because the world is such a dangerous place, particularly for Christians, believers. Verse 13, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Notice again, it's the gospel of what? The kingdom. All right, not the gospel of the church, not the gospel of salvation, the gospel, the king, the good news, the kingdom of God is coming. Do you want to be a part of that kingdom, or do you want to stay in this old kingdom that's coming apart? That's going to take down with it. Everything's going to be knocked down like the temple was. That'd be a good illustration. Not one stone left upon the other of the old age. The new age is coming. So Jesus tells us the next border side that we finish up here is that there are going to be deserters in the church. Many will turn away from the faith. These features, again, Jesus is trying to point out to us that there is opposition to Christianity. Can, I mean, in my own life, I can think back when I was growing up, it is not the same world the way Christians are looked at today. It is not the same. And I can see it more and more. Christians are looked at as the bad guys, as the intolerant guys, as the unloving guys, rather than let's all just throw open our arms and, you know, hold hands and sing kumbaya. It's like the world wants to say, you just have to accept everything and everybody and whatever anybody believes is just fine. But as Christians, we bring the gospel of the kingdom, which means there's a king and he owns this it's his, and we want to bring it to him and present it to him and be a part of what he's doing to repair the earth. He's the Savior. So Christians will be hated because they seem we will be called intolerant because of actually our love, our love for the world to speak the truth. We speak the truth in love. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the way of salvation. But the world will say, you're intolerant. You need to accept what anybody says that's their truth and they have much right to their truth as you do your truth so we become the bad guys and Jesus says you're going to be hated because of that so there's opposition and that's going to cause an increase in martyrdom and we all kind of go oh no martyrdom you know we're going to die for Jesus listen people have died for Jesus every year since Jesus came people are dying for Jesus now Across this world, in different places, if we aren't paying attention, there are more martyrs in this decade than there have been in any decade in the past. More now than ever before. We're just not seeing it in our part of the world. Jesus laid down his life for us. If we become Christ, then we become willing to lay down our lives for him. That's the truth. We have to be believers. I really believe. I really belong to this man, and he is coming to cleanse the world and to make it what God intends and what God created to begin with, and I want to be a part of that. And if that costs me my life, it costs my Savior his life. Remember, even Peter said, you know, when they came to crucify Peter, he said, I'm not worried that he'd be crucified like my Savior. Crucify me upside down. The death of the apostles was by martyrdom, except for John. And of course, he was in the prison, or on Patmos, the prison island, in exile. So we have to understand martyrdom. We, we kind of picture that as something totally foreign. It's been foreign to our world and our society, and we should be very grateful and very thankful for the nation in which we live. And we should fight for it. We should love it. It's been a gift of God to this world, and we want to honor that gift. But we are citizens of the kingdom of God. That is our highest calling. And that may at some point cost people their lives in this nation. We're not seeing that extensively in our nation at all right now. And that is a blessing of God. But there are other nations where your life is in danger. I remember in my youth pastoring back when I was in college, I remember kids accepting Christ whose parents kicked them out of the house. 
said, you cannot live in our house if you're going to follow Jesus. I mean, even back then, I mean, that was back in the 70s. And it's like, you know, I saw that kind of persecution there. And to think that could never happen here to get worse, oh, yes, it can, and it will. Because as the world unravels, people look for somebody to blame, and they look for somebody to save them. And Christians are going to be a lot to blame according to the world. So we should not look at martyrdom as something foreign to Christianity. It's not. And anytime martyrdom becomes, becomes more commonplace of Christians, you know what? The church gets purer and purer because only those who really believe will follow, right? People who are like, well, I'm not really sure, they'll run away. They will deny Christ. But if we really believe in Christ, then we have to say, I'm a follower. Remember that when the first school shooting started here in America, in Colorado, the testimony of the young girl in that class, when the guy held a gun at her and said, do you believe in Christ? And she said, I do, and he shot her. There's a high school kid willing to say, I'm not going to deny my faith. I'm willing to die for it. People of faith understand that God is making a new world, and this world is just going to keep going down. It's not going to get better. We are the hope of the world in Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way, you are the salt of the earth. You're the only thing that's preserving this thing. You're the only thing that's making this thing really zesty and tasteful. You are the light of the world. You bring light in this darkness. Jesus said, you've got to be what you are. Be salt, be light, be prepared in the last days to lay down our lives. And the way to know, how do I know if I would lay down my life tomorrow? Are you willing to lay it down today? That's a decision we make now, not a decision we make then. Are you, are you saying, God, I'm yours. Whatever, I am yours. I belong to you. And you know what? Jesus said, if you live and believe in me, you never die anyway. It's like you just make a transfer. And so we need to see death differently also, right? We need to see death as just the next passage to our next phase in life. We're not going to die. You're going to be alive in Christ the very moment this body stops working. The spirit still stays alive in Christ. We don't die. We walk into the presence of the Lord. And it's absolutely glorious and fabulous things you cannot imagine. The heart cannot conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. So there is... Desert, disasters in the world, deserters in the church. There's opposition that's coming against us. The second feature that happens in this uh, deserters in the church is reduction. Because of persecution, then what happens? People who aren't fully convinced of the faith, people who aren't really genuine, they'll revert back. They'll deny Christ. They will turn away. So nominal Christians, people who are just churchgoers and not really in love with God, the creator and his son, they're going to have to face the choice, am I going to really be a believer or am I going to slink away and say, I don't think so. It's too scary, too hard. And so reduction of the church will happen and a lot of people will give up. And Jesus said, the love of most will grow cold. Just the junk in the world. Wouldn't it be easy today even look at junk going on in, in, in our society, some of it, and just say, heck with that. You know, who's going to, I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to witness against that. Just let them go to hell. Who cares? It's like, just let them have their own way. Leave me out of it. It's like we want to have in our hearts this faith that takes the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, into the danger into the places of hatred where love can be seen and faith can become something that actually saves people, not just something that we toy around with in church. So reduction in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I've taught so many times, you see, you see this happening in the church. Even people who are true believers, some of them will pull back. And Jesus said when he comes again, or Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians 10, verse, I mean chapter 3, verse 10 and following, uh, he says, you know what? Some people are going to suffer loss when Jesus comes. Rather than being glad, they're actually, even though he says, and yet they will be saved. God's going to be faithful to them. They really did believe in him, but they didn't have the courage to live for him. And God says, when I, my son comes, they're going to suffer loss. I just can't imagine Jesus coming and not being glad and thrilled. And God says, you receive a reward. There are rewards for being faithful 
to the Lord. So while the church gets reduced, the third feature going on here in the deserters in the church, there's expansion. At the same time people are leaving the faith, people are coming into the faith. Both of those things happen at the same time. The church gets purer because people who aren't really sure, aren't really committed, aren't really following Jesus, just been church nice, good people, but not really believers, those people desert. But in the midst of that, what happens? Well, the church is left with everybody that really does believe. And the church gets brighter and brighter and more beautiful. It says the bride has made herself ready. Isaiah 60 How many times have we looked at that? Darkness is over the earth. Thick darkness is over the people. Here's the great tribulation these last few years. But the glory of the Lord rises upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. In other words, as the church gets purified, a lot of people are going to come into the church because they say, I'd rather have light than darkness. I'd rather give my life to this than to that. So there is opposition, martyrdom. These deserters in the church make reduction happen, but then we also see the church gets pure and bright and beautiful and filled with faith in the midst of the darkness becomes bright and filled with love and courage and nations will start coming into Christianity. More people will be saved, I believe, in the last three and a half years before Christ returns, the great tribulation that had been saved in all the rest of human history. More people in that period of time. I got a book about it, Last Great Revival. There is a great revival in front of us. And Jesus tells us the gospel of the kingdom, it's not going to be hidden. Christians that are getting purified are going to say, we're going to, we're going to tell everybody about the kingdom. And it's going to go, it says, he said to every nation. What he didn't tell us was how effective it was going to be. And we read in Revelation chapter 7 that uh, out of that great tribulation, that last three and a half years when things are so bad, What does John see? He said, I saw a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Too many for me to count, anybody to count. And they've washed themselves in the blood of the lamb. They're dressed in white and they're standing before the throne saying, salvation belongs to our God. Where do they come from? Angel asked John and John says, I don't know. You tell me. And the angel says, they came out of the great tribulation. They got saved in those last three and a half years from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. As Jesus said, the gospel goes forth, and it goes forth with great effectiveness. We're going to see revival. I want to be a part of revival. I want to be a part of nations coming into the kingdom of God. So during this period, the danger shifts from false messiahs to false prophets. The scripture teaches us that false prophets will come promising peace when there is no peace. They did that back in the Old Testament, didn't they? They'll do that in this day also. Prophets who will say peace, false false promises made of deliverance and being able to get over this and out of this, of the danger that's looming. They make light of sin that it doesn't matter in people's lives. And our protection during this is a wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ. We become purified. We become, I belong to God. I'm his. You know, if I die, I die. You know, people lay down their lives for our country, don't they? People lay down your life for your family. It's not like some strange thing that people lay down their lives for. It's what they love. And in this day, the question is, do you love God? Do you love Jesus? It's only love that will allow you to lay down your life. Do you love something? Do you honor it? Is it above everything? Are you willing to make the ultimate sacrifice? People do it for all kinds of things that they love. And in this day, it will be done for the Jesus, our Savior and our King. So our victory is assured by our willingness to follow the Lamb, to love Him. It says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Revelation 12, 11, talking about those last days, the great tribulation. And talking about Satan attacks them and Christians are killed. It says they triumphed over him, over Satan, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They knew, Jesus, it's your death for me that saves me and gives me eternal life, right? They said it's, it's by the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, and I'm willing to testify for you. The word of their testimony And even if it costs me my life, whether it does or not, I don't know, but I'm going to testify to Jesus in that day. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
doesn't say they all died. Not everybody gets martyred. But it says they were ready to. They gave their testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the duty that Christ calls us to, verse 13, stand firm to the end. Verse 13, stand firm to the end. That's the duty that we're called to under that second sign. First side, disasters in the world. Second, deserters in the church. Third, distress in the Middle East. Distress in the Middle East. Keep going down. Matthew 24, down to verse 15 now. So when you see the holy place, the abomination, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, so Jesus is referring back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation three times in Daniel. We don't have time to go back and look at it, but three times he, he mentions this. He says, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea, so he's talking about the nation of Israel, the northern part, southern parts, excuse me, flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of his house. Let one in the field go back to, uh, let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress unequal from the beginning of the world unto now and never to be equaled again. This is the great tribulation. Jesus is saying this is going to be the worst time in human history. It's never been this bad before. It's never going to be this bad again. This is what's going to happen right before I come. This is a sign of his coming. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. The darkness, thick darkness is over the people. It's the worst time in humans. It's never going to happen again this bad. And Jesus said in verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, people who are saved, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles. The devil's going to be pouring out power, but we know also God's going to be pouring out power, isn't he? We are going to have the power of healing and the miracles that we've seen in Acts and, and uh, even beyond what was happening in the Exodus, the Old Testament prophets tell us. When he comes again, he says, what you saw in the Exodus, I'm going to do more than that. And we see the ten plagues on Egypt and those kinds of things. So remember, we talk about great tribulation. We're not the victims of the great tribulation. We're the cause. This is God coming to rescue us. This is not us getting wiped out by the devil. This is God separating the world from us as he comes to save us. For false Christ, false prophets will appear, perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. It doesn't say it does deceive the elect. It says there will be such miracles if it were possible that even the elect would be deceived. But we're going to have our eyes so focused on Jesus at that point. We're going to know I'm not believing any false miracle. I believe in miracles. I believe in things of the Spirit, but that one's not from Jesus, and I'm not going to follow this person. And so verse 25, see, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is, the, the Christ, out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. So this time in history, more difficulties occur than any other time, as Jesus says, and God's people will reach their climax of testimony. We'll see the great revival coming in all at the same time. It's like it's getting worse and worse. Here, what's, what have I been prophesying for 15 years? The world's getting worse and worse, better and better, faster and faster. Birth pains speed up. Contractions speed up. And then you come to the big T, transition. You ladies who have had babies, you know what the transition is. And it's like, that's great tribulation. When you hit that moment in time, there's three and a half years, 42 months left. And we find that out as Daniel prophesies uh, about this abomination of desolation. 
he says it's going to be, there'll be a 42-month period, three and a half years. Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, talks about this great tribulation. This is where it's named, the great tribulation, Revelation 7, 14. So Jesus' words, he, he is speaking of the abomination of desolation. Well, we know, you look back at Daniel, three times he talks about it, chapter 9, 11, 12, and he's referring that there's going to come a human who comes into Jerusalem and uh, takes over the temple and there does uh, bad things, you know, sacrifices, pigs, and so forth like that. Well, there was actually an initial fulfillment of this prophecy. This has already actually been fulfilled one time. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, this is in the second century, 200 years before Jesus came. Antiochus, he shows up in Jerusalem, takes over, takes over the temple. He sets up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple, sacrifices pigs on the altar, fills the priest rooms with prostitutes. I mean, he just totally debases and degrades the temple of God. And that leads to what's called the Maccabean Revolt. This happens in between when the, when the Old Testament was finished, Malachi, the last prophet, when that stops, you've got this period of time in here, this 400 years, well, 200 years before Christ, that's when Antiochus Epiphanes shows up and does all of these things, and it was for 42 months that he had control of the temple. The Maccabean family rise up, lead a revolt, this is Jewish history, um, and get rid of him and bring it back under to the rule of the Jews, and then you have the Romans and so forth. But anyway, that's history. So understanding this prophecy, we have to realize that prophecies have multiple fulfillments. And we've taught this a lot around here. Uh, it's like when I grew up, we didn't have Google and we didn't have computers. We had encyclopedias. And in an encyclopedia, say you're going to study the human body, you have a, like a, a, a clear page on it, and you turn it over, and it's got the skeletal system on it. Here's a skeleton there. And you turn the next page, and it's got all the human organs on it. So they overlay, and you can see through each page, and it connects to the page under it, and now you've got all the organs on top of the skeletal system. Then you turn, and you've got all the muscle system on top of that. So you're learning about the human body, and then you turn, and you've got the final, the skin, and all the other stuff, and you can see it looks like a person. Prophecies are like that. There will be an initial prophecy and an overlay that, that attaches to it. It's right. It fulfills it, but it's not the final picture. It's not the end. In fact, it's very clear as Jesus is talking about this. Antiochus happened 200 years before Christ, but he's talking about something that's going to happen but again, but it's going to happen in the future. They ask him, when are you coming? What sign are you coming? He says, well, there's going to be what, like Daniel said, the abomination of desolation. Well, if they knew history, which they probably didn't at that moment, uh, they would have said, well, wait a minute, Antiochus has already done that. Jesus would have said, yes, that was an initial fulfillment, but there's another one coming. I actually had a vision uh, just a few years ago, not too many years ago. I was, I can tell you, right where I was on Beltway 8, just, uh, just before I got to the toll booth there uh, around 249 area. And all of a sudden, I had this vision in front of me. And it was like a stone was skipping over the water. Like as kids, you know, we'd take a flat stone and throw it at the water of the lake or something and see how many times you could make the rock skip. And the Lord said, Steve, prophecy is like that. That I speak a word and it comes and it, it hits and the depth that it hits, depend, uh, that's what makes the ripples go out from it. That's the impact that it has. And so a word comes down from me, and it hits, and it makes impact, and it has ripple effects to it. But then it rises back into the spirit, and it travels, and it hits another time, and it touches another group or another place. But there is a final landing where the thing goes in, and it has the greatest impact. So this is a way we're to look at prophecy, that the words of God live in the spirit. They come and they touch the earth. And you can sometimes see an initial fulfillment of a prophecy in the nation of Israel. There's an initial historical fulfillment, such as Antiochus. That would be one example. There are actually a number of examples of this. Um, and so there's a historical fulfillment. That word rises back up when Jesus shows up the word is fulfilled again. He will take that prophecy and say, this is about me, and it's happening now. Although it's already happened in Israel's history, now it's happening in him. That rock is coming back down, hitting our time and space continuum that we live in. It makes impact through Jesus. But then it lifts back up again, and there's a final time when it comes to the body of Christ, the church. 
not just the one Jesus in one nation, in one place, but a worldwide fulfillment through the body of Christ when that word lands and makes its final impact. So there are we need to learn to look at prophecy not just as a one-time thing. Oh, well, this was fulfilled back in Antiochus. Well, yes, but Jesus is saying it's something that's still going to come. There's another fulfillment of this. And there are a lot of prophecies and a lot of examples of that very process of them having multiple fulfillments down through history. And I even find it's like all of the word of God. When maybe someday it hits my life, some passage or something, it makes impact on me, doesn't it? I might read that to somebody else the next day. It doesn't mean anything to them, right? It doesn't have any impact. It's like the word didn't land on them at that moment, but there might be another time it lands on them. And the more we let it hit us, the word of God, the greater impact it has upon us and upon the world around us as the ripples spread out. So Jesus prophesies that there's coming this time when the Antichrist, actually at this point, will come in and he will make sacrifice and there will be this terrible time for three and a half years, which is the great tribulation that Jesus is talking about at this place. And so we need to look at prophecy as having multiple fulfillments if we're going to understand uh, all of these. And, and you could really take that formula, historical where things were fulfilled in natural Israel, prophetical, where they're fulfilled in the life of Jesus, and eschatological, where they're fulfilled in the body of Christ at the end of the age, when the final fulfillment of that word comes. That's a good formula. And not again, not every prophecy does that, but a number of prophecies can be seen to be fulfilled in those kinds of um, situations. Uh, again, Last Great Revival, my book, describes, uh, describes this process. So Jesus is speaking about a future event, it's already had one fulfillment initially, but there is more to come, and it will be of greater impact. But he says, Jesus says, that these days will be cut short. And again, we know the number of days because of the prophecy of Daniel, 42 months. And we see it repeated again in the book of Revelation. John deals with this topic in the, the Revelation, 1214. And he says, 42 months, three and a half years. So this is... This, these prophecies are very similar. Same place, it's going to happen in Jerusalem. Same um, kind of fulfillment, the, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness he's called in other places, or the beast as you get into Revelation. Second Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 tells us, calls him the man doomed to destruction. Revelation 13 gives you a lot of information about the Antichrist. If you want to do just some reading on what is he like, what is this guy going to be like, Revelation 13 is a good place to go. So the danger in this period, the danger is again deception. Deception, people being deceived, false prophets, false messiahs, people who have power, signs and, and wonders that are of the devil. And you remember when God led his people out of Egypt, some of the miracles that Moses did, the Egyptian magicians, they did the same thing, didn't they? They copied the signs of Moses. They had some spiritual power too, but it's coming from the dark side. And so when we see spiritual power, we have to understand where it's coming from and the fruit of it, uh, not just the power. Power doesn't signify it's necessarily from God. It could be from the dark side or it could be from the kingdom of God. So especially in those days, it said great signs and wonders. The devil's gonna be pouring out everything he's got. He knows his time is short at this point. So he's doing everything he can to destroy as many people as he can. And so there will be great signs and wonders that will be coming out of the, the kingdom of darkness. But God's signs and wonders will be coming out of the church, the body of Christ, and will be bringing salvation and life to them. So the man of lawlessness, the danger again is, is deception. It would be easy to be deceived. And these false prophets and the false messiahs that come around, that's, the, that's what he's talking about here with the vulture. It's like they're going to just circle like a, a vulture, circle a, a, a dead animal or something to pick the meat off the bones. They're just going to be going around trying to pick whatever they can off of anybody. Who can they influence? What can they get out of them? So these false Christs, these false messiahs says, when there's a dead body, the vultures are going to show up. He said, people are going to just be picking one another to death in that time. And he said, the false wonders would be so great, they would even try to deceive the elect, people who really believe in, in Jesus. But it doesn't say that he does deceive them. It says that they would actually try to deceive the elect. So 
At this time, there are rumors that Christ has returned. People are saying, oh, he's over here, he's over there. The world condition is, is terrible, worse than it's ever been, worse than it's ever going to be. But the fleeing part, where does this happen? Jesus said it very clearly, if you're in Judea. This is about a specific place on planet Earth now. This is not everybody everywhere flee. It's like, well, where would you go if everybody's fleeing? <laughs> you, know, you just run to where somebody else just left. It's like, no, this is talking about one place and one nation. It's talking about what's going on in the Middle East. Remember, that's our, our border sign here, right? All this stuff going on in the Middle East, the distress. So those who are in Judea, he says, when the man of lawlessness shows up in Jerusalem, and he reveals what he's doing, get out of there. Don't stay there. What is our duty? We remain watching and praying and faithfully witnessing the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus says here, uh, verse 25, I have told you this ahead of time. So it's very clear Jesus is not referring back to what did happen. It wouldn't even make sense. He's talking about another fulfillment that will come in the future. You could also look at prophecy, just another example uh, think about looking through a microscope and you look at something at a magnification of 10 and you write down exactly what it looks like. And then you turn it up to a magnification of 100 and you write exactly what it looks like. It's not going to be the same description as, a, as a, the power of 10, is it? Or magnification of 1,000. You're, you're looking at the same thing, but you're seeing it at different levels of power and revelation. And so it would look like they're not even talking about the same thing, but they are. They're describing it at a different level, at a different time. So prophecy, we, we, need, to, we need to be very careful about taking it and saying, this is all it means. And that's what, and there's a preterism, which is in you know, people who believe all the prophecies already been fulfilled. It's already been done. And that's their problem. They don't see that, you know what? There are other fulfillments of some of these prophecies. You can't just say, well, see, that one was done. That was done. Say, yes, yes, yes. But there can be multiple fulfillments, greater power, greater depth that we see in these prophecies till we come to the eschaton, the end of the age. So Jesus says, I've told you this ahead of time. And our duty here is, is don't believe the, the rumors, the false Christ who, who have shown up. Don't believe the false Messiah. Keep trusting the real Jesus who says, I'm not there yet. Keep waiting. There's three and a half years once we see the Antichrist revealed. Our understanding and trust in Christ, that's what anchors us in that hour. We know what Jesus has said. He's teaching his disciples here. He's certainly teaching us. This is what it's going to be like at my coming and the end of the age. So two things to remember at this point. When we see the Antichrist in Jerusalem, we see what's happening there. Know this, Christ has not yet come. No matter how many people say he has, no matter what kind of testimony, what kind of power, when you see that, you know there's 42 months left. There's still some time left. So Christ has not yet come, despite all the rumors to the contrary. Believers have not yet gone despite all the people who say, oh, we get raptured out before the tribulation. Jesus doesn't seem to think so. He's still talking about what we're supposed to be doing during these last 42 months here. So Christ has not yet come. Believers have not yet gone. And there's a lot of teaching today that says he has gone. I mean, that he's already come and taken the church away. So the believers aren't yet gone. He's telling us what we need to be doing here. Believers are still on the earth. We're still in the midst of all this stuff unraveling. But what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be overcoming. We're supposed to be sharing the love of Jesus. We're supposed to be testifying to there is hope, there is a real Messiah, and it's the real Jesus who's going to show up pretty shortly, but he's not here yet. We still take this gospel of the kingdom. Our king is coming. He's not here yet. Believe in the Jesus I trust in, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's our duty in this time. That's our duty. Keep testifying to Christ because we are still there in the midst of that. That's what the, brings the great revival. Again, back to Isaiah 60, the darkness is on the earth, but the brightness of Christ shines in us. We become loving and holy and good people, pure with Jesus, believing in God so powerfully at this point. We've laid down our lives, say, I'm yours, Lord, do whatever you want with me. And nations, it says, will come to that light. Kings to the brightness of your rising. That's the last great revival, Revelation 7. Every tribe, tongue, language, and nation amassed too many to even count. They're coming out of the tribulation getting saved. They're coming to Jesus. So we'll be there bringing in that revival. So 
We are to be overcoming. We are to be light in the midst of the deepest darkness. So just write down that. Isaiah 61 through 3, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 17, Revelation 13, 15. Uh, all of these things are telling us we're going to be there and there's going to be great revival. And it's going to be a glorious time. Though the world gets worse and worse, we're the better and better part. We're revealing where life really comes from. Isaiah chapter 20, verse 4. Where's Tom Petrie? There he is right there. He asked a question at, um, in the Propel conference. I said, I've got my wrong Bible because I've got that outline in my other Bible. And I brought my other Bible, Tom, so I'm going to answer your question for you. It's, uh, this is an aside. All right, we're stepping out of the way here. Um, Tom asked about in verse, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, it looks like when you read it straight through that only those who are beheaded get raised up and rule with Christ for a thousand years. If you just kind of read it. So I'm just read this Isaiah chapter 20. I mean, I'm sorry, Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had worshipped the be- had not worshipped the beast or his image had not received the mark on their forehead or upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. There's the millennium. And so... In some translation, it looks like just those who are beheaded come to life and reign with Christ a thousand years. But I want you to look. There's several groups of people here. Notice the word and. I saw thrones, verse 4, and they sat upon them. So here's a group of people. They're ruling and reigning. These are actually the dead in Christ who have already risen. We know they rise first. And judgment was given to them. Go back to Revelation 5, 9, and 10. We who are believers in Christ, we've been saved. It says you will reign with him on the earth. And here's the picture of that. We're sitting on thrones. People who have already died in Christ, they're raised. They're already coming into their rule and reign. But notice the word and here. And the judgment was given to them. And here's a second group of people. I saw the souls of those who were beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. So there's a group of martyrs that are in this story. And here's a third group, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark upon their forehead or upon their hand, they came to life. So it's talking about all those three groups, which includes all the dead in Christ who have already been raised and are coming into their authority, those who are beheaded for the sake of Christ, and those who live through the great tribulation. Not, not everybody dies. It's like there'd be billions or so few billion still living on planet earth. And, and so um, uh, it, it says here that, that they didn't take the mark of the beast and they didn't worship him. And they're, they're another group besides those who were beheaded and besides the dead in Christ. And they were all raised up and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So is that a better answer? I was a little befuddled there before because I was looking at my other Bible and I have it marked up badly. So there's the answer to that. Um, so a lot of people survive. It's not like everybody dies during the Great Tribulation. Say there are 10 billion people on planet Earth when Jesus comes again. I'm just making up a number. Uh, you know, what, there's 6, 7 billion now. So, you know, give us a few decades here. We'll be there. And I, I believe, again, in my own heart, I believe God will at least take a tithe out of the earth of people to be saved. And Jesus tells us about the broad way and the narrow way, and that few find the narrow way. Few are going to be really following Jesus. So many are going to go the broad way into destruction. So we know most people don't get saved, but there are those that do. And so I believe God will at least take, in that great tribulation, that 42 months, I believe God will at least save a billion people on planet earth during that time. Again, that's just my own personal feeling that God would not do less than a tithe. And I'm going to pray and believe he's going to do a double tithe, maybe 2 billion people. So great tribulation, lots of stuff going on. Not everybody dies. There are a lot of people that live through this because we're going to be here when Jesus comes, right? We're going to rise to meet him in the air. Okay. Um, number four, our four things. Disasters in the world, deserters in the church, distress in the Middle East, the final sign, darkness in the sky. Darkness in the sky. Matthew 24 down to verse 39. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. So we're in the great tribulation. The moon will not give its light. Whatever this is, maybe nuclear blast or whatever, and you've got a nuclear winter, it's all clouds, the light can't get through. I'm not saying that's going, how it happens, but somehow it's going to happen that the light of the, sun, of the sun will be darkened. It doesn't say it's totally gone, it's just darkened. 
like behind the clouds, and moon will not give its light. It could easily be overshadowed by clouds, dust, dirt. The stars will fall from the sky. So we're going to see comets and other things. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. So the heavens are shaken. You read the end of uh, Isaiah 24, and it says God's going to uh, punish the powers on the earth that reject him and the powers in the heaven. So these stars could even be references to other gods and things that have not ruled and reigned according to God's plan and purposes. So at that time, the Son of Man, boy, I should explain that was a big statement I just made, wasn't it? I'm sorry. Um, I don't have time to explain other gods, but uh, let's say this. There's only one creator God, but he has spiritual children that he's created to help him rule and reign. And, and we're spiritual children that help him rule and reign. But there are, we know there are angels and seraphim and cherubim. Well, there are other creatures too the Bible teaches us about. Most of us just haven't really studied that. But anyway, so there's only one creator God. Let me, let me put you that. I'm, don't, I'm not polytheist, okay? It's just one God, but they're sons of God that the Bible talks about in lots of places. So that could be uh, pictured here prophetically by, by the stars, but maybe not. It could be real stars too. At that time, verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So here's the point where we rise to meet the Lord in the air, like Paul writes about in Thessalonians. This is at the end of the tribulation, not before the tribulation. This is at the end when all this happens. The final sign, unmistakable to believers after the distress of those days, heaven shaken, darkness afflicting the earth from the heavenly lights that were in creation. Even the Hebrew prophets foretold this same thing, Isaiah 13. Uh, verse 9 through 13 says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and, fierce, wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate, to destroy sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellation will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So, and it talks about uh, other things about, I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth shake at the wrath of the Lord Almighty. So this is the bowls. If you study the book of Revelation, the bowls of wrath. This is the last thing God does. And hear me, this is happening in 30 days. There are 30 days of wrath at the very end of the tribulation. That's where those last seven bowls are poured out when you read that. You've got the trumpets and, and, and you've got the bowls at the very end. And there are a 30-day period when Christ gathers up his elect from the earth and... Um, he is about to bring us all back to rule and reign with him, and his wrath is poured out in that 30 days. So Isaiah 34.4, Joel 2.31, which gets quoted in Acts 2.21, just tells you that things in the sky, God's always used those kinds of things, right? Didn't a star hang over the Bethlehem announce Jesus' rival? He used the star there. Jesus' death on the cross, there was an eclipse of the sun, right? So there are always, God uses things in the sky. This is not like something that's never happened before, but it's going to be a greater magnitude at this time because it's a greater magnitude event. The star announced his birth, the eclipse of the sun, his death, and these cosmic signs will announce his second coming. If you go to the theater sometime and you're going to watch a play or something, the house lights dim and you know something's about to happen and the stars are going to arrive on the stage. That's what it's going to be like at the coming of the Son of Man. The sky is darkened and the bright light, the morning star is about to arise. And it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. It's going to come like a lightning flash from the east to the west. And the world will come face to face with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Creator will show up. What a day that will be. Amen. Oh, listen. This is not a time of distress for us. It's a time of sacrifice. It's a time of glorious testimony and service and ministry to give our lives as Jesus gave his life. And who gets to stay and who doesn't, the Lord gets to decide that. We don't have to worry about that. He did that in the New Testament, right? Peter and James in the prison together and one of them gets their head chopped off and the other one, the angel comes and gets them out. It's like, well, I think I'd rather have the angel. <laughs> but it's like God knows the destiny of each of us. Trust him. Trust your life to him. He's worthy.
That's why we're believers. We really believe this is real. This is not just makeup. This is the reality of our creator and what he's doing and his heart of love, wanting to do everything he can to shake people loose. Say, stop trusting other things. There's nothing solid. Trust me. I made you. I want you in my family. So there is the great command given by God, a trumpet blast. It's going to be loud enough to wake the dead. (laughs) That's going to be a great trumpet blast. Hallelujah. And for many believers... You, some of you are going to be here, I hope, believe that might be possible, I think it's possible, it's going to be your first trip to the Holy Land, you're going to get a free flight, you're going to have angels as your flight attendants, and you get transformed, you get a forever body, with no more pain or sickness, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says, we rise to meet the Lord in the air, and it's going to be a great service, hallelujah, believers are transformed, unbelievers are left behind. And Jesus tells us this in Matthew 24, verse 39, as we get to the end of the chapter through 41. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding the hand mill. One will be taken, the other left. And as Paul says, we know then we will forever be with one another and with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are still alive, believers are still here. Don't talk about some rapture before the tribulation. And those who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So be encouraged. Father, I pray that we would be a people of readiness, steadiness, faithfulness, and fearlessness. I pray that for each of my family here, Lord. Readiness, we'd be ready, Lord. Steady, we would not be shaken. We know who we belong to. We know that death does not have the final say. Faithfulness, always representing you, Lord. And fearlessness, that we would love not our lives even unto death, Lord. Death doesn't frighten. You have the keys. You are the Lord of life. So God, I pray that you would form in us as a church family, as individuals, you would form in us the power of love because it is the first commandment that will overcome everything this world is going to see. If we love you more than life itself, we will share in life eternal. Thank you, Lord. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for sticking with me and you online. Still there. Thank you. God bless you. Hope you have a great rest of the afternoon. Maybe spend some time talking to Jesus about your devotion to him. For all of us, for all of us, let's be this kind of people. Steady, ready, faithful. Huh? Let's stand there with the Lord, fearless, and be his kids, God's kids. Amen? Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. We hope you've enjoyed this episode from Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary Community Church, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com.